If I win, I am going to instruct my Attorney General to get a special prosecutor to look into your situation because there has never been so many lies, so much deception. There has never been anything like it. People have been, their lives have been destroyed for doing one fifth of what you've done. And it's a disgrace. And honestly, you ought to be ashamed of Secretary yourself. Secretary Clinton, I want to follow up on that. Yeah, I'm going to let you talk about it Because everything he just said is absolutely false, but I'm not oh, surprised. Really? It's just awfully good that someone with the temperament of Donald Trump is not in charge of the law in our country. Yeah, because you'd be in jail. Secretary Clinton. That is then-candidates Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton in October 2016 at their second presidential debate. Trump is alleging that Hillary Clinton should be in jail, and not for the first time. But what crimes had Clinton supposedly committed? Donald Trump is the messiah figure in QAnon lore. So, you know, the idea behind QAnon is that Democrats and the Hollywood elite and, um, you know, lots of other folks are involved in all kinds of um, misdoings and that one day um, Donald Trump will come along and unleash the storm. And that's when he will save all of us from all of this deep state misbehavior and, you know, child trafficking. It's one thing to think that a group of powerful elites control the world. That's literally what this show is about. But it's another thing to believe that these elites are cannibals who have sex with children and worship Satan, which is what QAnon believers seriously believe. If you are not of QAnon, this is crazy. This is absolutely crazy. There is no way of um, getting your head around where these ideas come from and how they can have the force and the organizing force that they do um, without any kind of argument or evidence that we can understand. Today, we're taking a trip down the rabbit hole and trying to figure out what the rabbit hole itself really is and what it says about American democracy. Conspiracy theories are easy to believe in a lot of instances because it's easier than thinking that the world is a disordered place where terrible things happen to good people sometimes for no reason. Life is arbitrary and meaningless. And terrible things happen to good people all the time. Conspiracy theories offer an appealing alternative to that. I used to love conspiracy theories. The Illuminati and the Reptilians, the supposed reptile people who secretly run the world, because they were fun and interesting. But I found out, years after reading about the Reptilians, that the theory was invented by an anti-Semite. And Reptilian was code for Jew. Maybe conspiracy theories aren't a fun, dumb hobby. I think with, with a movement like Q, is it, it, it would have been amazing to ignore. <laughs> it would have been um, it would have been amazing if 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 it was just a small group of fringe uh, crazy people that we didn't have to pay attention to. But once they started running for office, once the president started retweeting them hundreds of times, once they started showing up to the rallies, 
um, it became news and it became important to watch and it became uh, important to debunk. The challenge, of course, is with like with any conspiracy theory, um, they're almost impossible to debunk because every evidence, uh, every new piece of information, every piece of evidence is seen as further evidence of disinformation. Um, and you can never really break that bubble, right? When a conspiracy theory is embraced by the powerful, it becomes something different. Something we have to pay attention to. How did conspiracy theory go from obscure internet forum to the White House? And what does it mean for the rest of us? Who is QAnon? I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is? The podcast from Now This, where we talk about power through the stories of people who have it. Today, we're doing something a little different, and it starts with pizza. So the precursor conspiracy to QAnon was Pizzagate. And Pizzagate was this idea that there was a specific um, child sex ring being run out of a DC pizza shop. So the idea of children has always been at the heart of the QAnon movement because Pizzagate was just sort of moved right on over and enveloped by QAnon. That's Brandy Zadrozny, an NBC reporter who covers extremism and disinformation, specifically on the internet. Pizzagate is the conspiracy theory which developed after WikiLeaks released an enormous trove of John Podesta's emails. Podesta, a key aide to Hillary Clinton, made occasional references to pizza. Pizzagate believers interpreted this as code, indicating that the entrance to a child's sex trafficking ring's lair was hidden in Comet Ping Pong, a pizza parlor in Washington, D.C. For a while, pretty wild rumors had been circulating on the Tea Party fringe. Remember Obama's alleged death panels after the Affordable Care Act passed? But anyway, Pizzagate is also when 28-year-old Edgar Madison Welch showed up at Comet Ping Pong in 2016 with an assault rifle. Yeah, a guy opened fire in the restaurant in an attempt to get in and liberate children from the basement. Luckily, Welch was a terrible shot and no one was hurt. Comet Pizza doesn't even have a basement. The shooter, after his arrest, told the New York Times, quote, the intel on this wasn't 100%, end quote. The intel was, in fact, 0%. But Pizzagate had a bigger villain than a pizza place, Hillary Clinton, who at the time was the Democratic nominee for president, running against Donald Trump. Hillary Clinton created ISIS with Obama. <laughs> created with Obama. People have long hated Hillary Clinton. Again, if we're thinking that a lot of this is holdover from the Tea Party, she was the main enemy, uh, one of the main enemies in the Tea Party movement right after Barack Obama. Um, people have long, people on the right have long, long, long hated Hillary Clinton ever since she was first lady. She was the main figure when these conspiracies started. She was um, the main figure in Pizzagate because these were um, her, it was her campaign staff that was suppo supposedly sharing these emails that Supposedly, I keep having to say supposedly, but allegedly, because it's so stupid, but I just want to make sure everybody knows it's fake. But she was the, the main figure in those emails and people worked for her 
um, and the emails that first sparked the Pizzagate conspiracy. So again, this Pizzagate never ended. It was just sort of moved over and became enveloped by the QAnon conspiracy. QAnon starts with literally one post on 4chan. 4chan is an online web forum constantly populated with new posts, arranged chronologically and disappearing over time. Most 4chan posts are less permanent than a message written on a dive bar urinal and just as profane, but an idea that may have made it all the way to the Oval Office started there. Amarnath Amara Singham is a professor at Queen's University in Canada whose scholarship focuses on religion and extremism, particularly extremist belief. Well, the QAnon conspiracy began in 2017 on 4chan when somebody posted, somebody going by, signing off as Q posted a message which basically said Hillary Clinton will be arrested between 7.45 a.m. and 8.30 a.m. on Monday, October 30th. And so it was a very precise kind of statement that a major political figure was going to be arrested on this particular time, this particular day. And just for the record, was Hillary Clinton arrested on October 30th? (laughs) Uh, Hillary Clinton was not arrested on October 30th. The 2017 post begins as follows. Quote, HRC extradition already in motion effective yesterday with several countries in case of cross-border run. End quote. No crimes or acts are specified. We don't know what Hillary Clinton supposedly did that would result in her fleeing the United States on a, quote, cross-border run. And three years later, Hillary Clinton still hasn't fled the United States. The Clinton arrest was supposed to trigger complete societal collapse, rioting, and mass arrests. The, quote, storm. The motif of the storm itself originates in a strange and admittedly cryptic Trump non-sequitur. Trump. Maybe it's the calm before the storm. Reporter. What storm, Mr. President? Trump. You'll find out. In the early Q posts, more questions are offered than questions are answered. Like, what political leaders worship Satan? Or, what does spirit cooking represent? A smorgasbord of notables are referenced, and for the most part, it's the usual suspects. George Soros, Princess Diana, Nancy Pelosi, Vladimir Putin... Posts are cryptic and cryptically incoherent. For example, here's one from February 2018. Quote, think children, think slaves, think sheep, Q, end quote. It's all the work of an anon or anonymous person who eventually signs off as Q clearance patriot. The Q referencing a Department of Energy security clearance level. The anon comes from the same place as the hacker collective anonymous. New posts on 4chan list the username as anonymous, so Q plus Anon equals QAnon. To this day, the identity of the original poster, or posters, remains unclear. Some people think Q is JFK Jr., who died in a plane crash in 1999. When Q posts, it's called a Q drop, although Q refers to these drops as crumbs. Quote, some of us come here to drop crumbs. Just crumbs, Q posted. So at the time, all of this is pretty far out, and the barrier of entry is high. You had to be able to locate and navigate obscure forums that don't surface in a Google search. How did this conspiracy theory spread from anonymous Q drops in a fringe web forum to Grandma's 2005 Dell desktop? What we did in 2018 was we we were interested in 
not who is Q, because in a way it doesn't really matter who Q is, but how Q became so big, why we were seeing these Q shirts everywhere, why we were seeing baby, you know, babies in ones, Q onesies being held up at Trump rallies, um, and who was making money off of this. So what we did was we wanted to track it across the platform. So we started with the chans, and then we um, moved to YouTube and Reddit, and then we showed how it from there moved onto Facebook, where it really has blown up now. Q went mainstream, and platforms, sites like Facebook and Reddit, made that possible. The three people behind that, again, are less interesting to me than the actual uh, platforms that sort of allowed that kind of platform jumping because it really did work as a channel. But two of them were moderators on the 4chan platform, and they had sort of pumped QAnon up on that platform, but soon realized that mm, it really wasn't doing enough, it wasn't moving enough, and that the secret to mainstream adoption would really be to get that on a larger platform. And so they brought in a woman who goes by, her name's Tracy Diaz, but she goes by Tracy Beans. Good afternoon. It is 3.08 p.m. Eastern Time on Tuesday, 11-20-2018. I came across this last night and I just was beside myself. And I'm sure that a lot of people are talking about this. This is Celine Dion's new genderless clothing line. And when she announced that she was going to do a genderless clothing line, I said, oh, there goes another celebrity just destroying everything that is natural in the world. She was sort of a wannabe researcher. She was doing these like internet radio shows promoting sort of tea party beliefs, a lot of conspiratorial stuff. Everybody in the government was out to get Donald Trump, um, sort of the deep state before the deep state was cool. Tracy was on it and she really promoted it in videos. So she had already subscribed a bit to the Pizzagate conspiracy. And she says that she wanted to introduce the theory to her small audiences. And she did a couple of videos like that. And from there, because she had a sort of modest following from there, other YouTubers picked it up. And then you saw a sort of spread among the sort of farther right conspiratorial YouTubers. And then from there, they made a subreddit. And then they got a new audience that way. And then when the subreddit was closed down, they moved to Facebook. It just so happened that at the time, Facebook was shifting how its 100 million plus users in the United States and billions of users worldwide interacted on the platform. I think in 2017, Mark Zuckerberg gave a speech where he said that Facebook equals community. And Facebook was going to pivot from the way that they had done things before, which was, you know, you look at your feed, you see some posts from friends and family, you see some news, um, you see some information, and, and that's your main hub. But in 2017, it says, no, we're gonna we're gonna start moving these people up, away from their main feed and into groups where they can organize, collaborate with like-minded individuals. The problem with that is that while profits have continued to rise, membership in groups has continued to rise. Um, now it's at around 500 million people, users in what they call meaningful groups. Um, that's all continued to rise. But unfortunately, what's also happened is that Facebook has done a very, very good job at creating communities of extremists. 
In March of this year, Pew found that just 3% of Americans had, quote, heard or read a lot about QAnon. But 3% of the United States is nearly 10 million people. And if millions of adults in the United States believe Donald Trump is fighting off a Satanist pedophile cabal, that's a lot. We'll be back after this. So, millions of Americans believe that only President Trump is standing between the world as we know it and a cabal of Satanist cannibal pedophiles. No, really, millions. In August of this year, Brandy Zdrozny obtained an internal Facebook investigation of QAnon activity on the platform. Quote, The top 10 groups identified in the investigation collectively contain more than 1 million members with totals from more top groups and pages pushing the number of members and followers past 3 million. It is not clear how much overlap there is among the groups, end quote. And that's just Facebook. Zadrozny described these groups as communities of extremists. But what is extremism? Is that the right way to think about QAnon? Back to Amarnath Amara Singham for Extremism 101. Extremism uh, is basically, I mean, to use, uh, you know, J.M. Berger's definition is when the in-group feels like the destruction of the out-group or then attack on the out-group is necessary for the survival of the in-group, right? And so I put that in less academic language. It's when we believe that our survival is fundamentally linked to hostile action against the other or against other groups that we have deemed to be our enemy. And so when you start to think in those us and them categories that the other's destruction is justified, is necessary for your own survival or for the survival of what you believe and what you hold to be fundamentally important, that's what we generally label as extremism. And then acts of violence based on that belief can fairly, I think, uncontroversially be called uh, terrorist attacks, even though all those definitions are continuously debated. But I think generally speaking, that's probably true. Emma Rassingham has an idea of what, broadly speaking, the psychology of this is. I remember talking to a few kind of former neo-Nazis about, about this, and they, they, they say pretty clearly, you know, when I was in the movement, I felt like I felt like I was the only awake person in a society that was asleep. And so I have an obligation to bring this message and do something about it. And so, yeah, I think that's deeply empowering. I I don't think we want to downplay how galvanizing and empowering that makes you feel when you believe that you have a fundamental obligation to wake up society to what's really happening. I remember when I was making another show, Apocalypse Now This, a video show about different ways the world could end. It was mostly like real scientific or political reasons. But for one episode, I interviewed Nancy Leader, who claims she communicates with aliens who told her that another planet was going to crash into ours. This was when Q wasn't as well known as it is now. She asked me as we were setting up the cameras, did you see? There was a new Q drop this morning. Nancy is the type of person who you'd think follows Q. But it's not only people like Nancy who believe this stuff. Back to Brandy Zadrozny. I have no idea. I I have no idea what makes one person, you know, susceptible to the brain worms and one person sort of immune. Um, it is crunchy moms and, you know, MAGA people and evangelicals and... Um, and self-described witches. It's it's just it, it, it it's everybody. And what 
what it there does seem to be some sort of inciting incident though and it's it's just a piece of information that you know they call it red pilling right red pilling that's a matrix reference the the scene where Lawrence Fishburne offers Keanu Reeves two pills the blue pill and the red pill the red pill is the one that opens your eyes to the true nature of reality they see one piece of information and they say wow i didn't understand that and a lot of that comes from youtube videos these sort of QAnon propaganda videos that are made and they sound very ominous and they're well lit and they're well made and it's scary and that is usually the eye opener and from that they fall down a rabbit hole and what I do know is that it happens so quickly we're talking on Monday you don't know anything about this stuff what is QAnon who cares about that and then by Friday, you are in multiple groups, you're contributing, you are going back and looking at all of the old posts, you are trying to get up to speed. And that happens very quickly. And that's what I see time and time and time again. Uh, it's just the, the speed with which these people get indoctrinated. But not everyone who gets indoctrinated follows the same path. Back to Amarasingham. I think if there's one if there's one conclusion that uh, researchers have basically come to agree on, uh, and we don't agree on much, but if there's one thing that we agree on, I think that the pathways by which somebody joins any of these movements is fundamentally different per individual. And honestly, it could happen to you. I've seen it happen to everybody. I mean, I've seen it happen to uh, young people, old people, uh, immigrants, people who were born here, uh, born in born in the country that they're in. Uh, single parents, uh, you know, happy households, university educated, high school dropouts, um, mental health issues, no mental health issues. It's it's uh, across the board that if you come to believe that uh, something is, you're, you're kind of called on to do something, that there's a deep injustice happening in society that you're personally called on to address and, and rectify, um, certain individuals will uh, will will answer that call, right? And and others might, you know, post a message on Facebook or tweet or write a letter to their member of parliament or, or you know, state representative or whatever it might be. But a certain subset of individuals do feel like they have to make a personal sacrifice, that they have to mobilize on their own uh, and actually do something to address uh, this injustice that they're seeing. And it's not only about injustice. I can say from experience, loving conspiracy theories as a kid, or even now, producing this show and digging into documents and news stories to learn about people, this stuff is fun. Almost like a game. With QAnon, it's totally become a game. I mean, the game stuff is, is interesting because it's, um, it's, it's, it's choose your own adventure, for sure. And it is fan fiction. And, and for a lot of people, especially, you know, QAnon's blown up while we're in a pandemic. It really is something to do. It's like a crossword puzzle on steroids because once you once you solve this puzzle, um, you are part of figuring out how Donald Trump is going to save the world. So the stakes are very big. And for a lot of folks, again, that maybe. I, I'm a little empathetic with them, so I always, I, maybe I shouldn't do this, but I always um, think about it in terms of, well, if someone's lonely, if someone's separated from their family, if someone is, you know, out of work, and 
they find importance. And we all do. We all find importance in social media, right? We all are addicted to likes and shares. And this, for a, for a lot of people, to become the sort of person who translates um, this is is a is a piece of of social importance. It makes them feel good and like they're smart and that they're contributing to a team. This is actually a key difference between QAnon and other extremist belief systems. It's decentralized and non-hierarchical. Everybody can contribute. A lot of uh, extremist movements um, are hierarchical, right? Or do have uh, charismatic leaders, do have literature, do have... um, things that they look to uh, uh, for leadership and and in a way uh, in a way the kind of strictness of some of these extremist movements tries to clamp down on independent thinking right tries to clamp down on um, individual members of the group uh, proposing where the group should go and how the group should think um, and and you know you couldn't imagine ISIS doing that or, or or certain neo-nazi groups doing that whereas it's very much a kind of this is what we believe from the top down and this is what we're doing. Um, whereas QAnon, because, uh, again, I think because Q isn't a flesh and blood person that can serve as a kind of charismatic leader, um, it's, it's become much more democratic in a way. It's become outsourced and, and, and these individuals have taken it upon themselves to uh, figure out the puzzle, do your own research. Um, they're protagonists in this cosmic war that might come to an end at any minute. And so they have to keep going. They have to uh, try to figure out this puzzle and do, it, do what they can before it's too late. Before it's too late. You may have seen stories about QAnon adherents who want to save the children. And that takes us back to the concerns that motivated Pizzagate, which is also why Q believers take it so seriously. In their reality, they're fighting for the kids. Um, we don't often like to think of extremist groups as kind of social justice oriented, but I think it, it's an important aspect of how we can understand them because uh, we need to really get inside their heads to understand how that works because even the QAnon individuals, we may just think that these belief systems are absolutely insane, but they believe that the entire country is being run by Satan-worshipping pedophiles and, and that children are being trafficked and abused systemically. And so their response is often fundamentally a moral one, right? It, it, it's, if, if, this, if the theory were true, I think all of us would be outraged. And so the response to that is, a, is fundamentally based on a moral impulse and, a moral, and moral outrage. It just happens to be completely false, but they believe it to be true and it's animating how they go about their day. And so I think, I think that aspect of it is important to understand when we talk about radicalization. It's not that they're evil or that they're deranged, it's that they're like everybody else. It's just that they believe certain kinds of things to be true while others don't. And they're willing to go to kind of great lengths to fight for it. This moral impulse is something QAnon shares with other extremist belief systems and also very mainstream belief systems. I once uh, did a training session with Canadian Armed Forces, uh, kind of new recruits to the Canadian Armed Forces, um, and I gave this whole talk about the Islamic State, about foreign fighters, about how you know regular Canadian uh, young people were leaving to go fight with the Islamic State, and I, rem- I remember this vivid- vividly. A, a, a kind of soldier came up to me at the end and said, you know, I didn't want to say this out loud in front of everybody else, but this kind of sounds like why I joined the Canadian military. <laughs> The other thing that's important, I think, is how how intensely you identify with your in-group, 
right? And so if you're a uh, the people who join um, join the military might might be you know deeply patriotic, might be deeply committed to the American ideal, whereas someone who joins the Islamic State uh, believes that all Muslims are uh, are one body, and that when part of that body gets harmed, um, it's the obligation of everyone in that collective to respond and do something about it. It's the doing something about it where QAnon goes from bizarre to frightening. Remember, this all began with Pizzagate, a man firing an assault rifle into Comet Ping Pong, a pizza parlor in Washington, D.C. And that's not all. In May 2018, a man took part of a cement factory hostage, claiming it was a child sex trafficking camp. In June 2018, another man drove an armored truck full of weapons to the Hoover Dam on a mission to get the government to release more of Hillary Clinton's emails. In 2019, a fundraising event at a high school in California was canceled when Q followers claimed a tweet by former FBI director James Comey revealed that there'd be a false flag attack at the event. In April of this year, a woman was arrested for live streaming her attempt to kill Joe Biden with a knife. She screamed during her arrest. Have you guys heard about the kids? And in August, another woman drove her car into another motorist who she said was a pedophile who kidnapped a girl for human trafficking. This isn't a new thing either. In 1995, Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols bombed the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. 168 people were killed and 680 were injured. I think the FBI has always been on top of it since, you know, Oklahoma City. I think they, they're quite aware of what white supremacist movements and neo-Nazis and, and the kind of threat that they pose domestically. But the political class, the people in government, I don't think are, are fully accepting that this kind of domestic terrorism could really ramp up to the to a threat level that you know compares to ISIS and Al Qaeda. I'm worried that the policy response federally, plus I think culturally in the United States, we're much more used to seeing the threat from outside. You know, Trump's border wall, the uh, complete and absolute ban on Muslims entering the country, et cetera, et cetera. Islam hates us. All these things, I think, particularly since 9-11, has, have been focused outward. And, and it, it'll take a real shift in consciousness, I think, to understand the domestic threat. And that's further complicated by the fact that the domestic threat is quite diverse, right? It's not it's not Al-Qaeda, it's not ISIS, it's not one group with a name and a leader that you can point to. It's disparate groups who believe in different things. Some are far right, some are simply militia movements, and so on. So it, it's a much more uh, scattered threat um, and, and not ideologically coherent threat, which I think also makes it much more difficult. QAnon is dangerous. Here's Brandy Zdrozny. It is only a matter of time before something really terrible happens, and people will have to answer for that. People who enabled the spread of this belief, and people who had the chance to say it isn't real, but didn't. I don't know why the collective country lost its mind, Um, but like, you know, we've always been sort of interested in conspiracy theorists. We've had, you know, radio hosts who have long sort of been, you know, the Alex Joneses before Alex Jones. This isn't really a new thing. I think the newness of it and the power really does come from amplification. What at one time would have been someone screaming on a megaphone on top of a soapbox in his town square is now being connected with people who think just like he does and um, they organize together online. So, and they're, and they're being introduced to each other by platforms like, oh, you know, you think that the government is um, dumping chemicals on you from the sky to stop population. 
you're going to love Jimmy. He also thinks that. And it's recommending groups and friends to you based on these shared set of um, values, which is just, you know, literally insane. Brandy Zadrozny calls this geographically disparate, decentralized group of reality-rejecting extremists a cult. Um, and I, it, it really, it, I mean, it's just a cult. I don't know. I don't know how else to say it. It really is a cult. Um, people are increasingly falling for it and getting sucked into it and finding meaning from it. And, and, and none of the, the fact that none of the predictions come true or, um, and, you know, none of the things come to pass that allegedly were, were supposed to happen years ago doesn't matter. Um, the fact that we never get any sort of a revelation that see JFK Jr. here he actually is like it never seems to matter and to me what that says is that it's not about the Q drops it's not about you know the actual message it's about the community and the feeling these people are getting from this cult you know I talked to one woman who she would print out the Q drops and put them in a big binder she literally made herself a Q Bible. And she would go back and read over Q drops um, in her spare time and she would study them. And so like that for me sort of solidified the religious aspect and which all of those things together, when you put together uh, a shared belief system that is based on lies and conspiracies, also bringing people together, isolating them from their families, and that spells cult. So that's sort of the the best way that I think about it is that it's a cult. Zdrozny often gets notes from folks whose family members or friends have been pulled into the QAnon universe and can't seem to get out of it. I constantly get notes and letters and DMs from people just saying, I've lost my mom, I've lost my dad, I've lost my coworker, I lost my boss, uh, I lost my son. Uh, to QAnon that he these people were normal and now they are in this crazy cult. What do I do? There are very few stories of people who were in QAnon or believed in QAnon or really involved in QAnon and then got out. And that's common because who wants to say that they were duped? Who who wants to come out and say, I, I believe this insane thing, but it's not true and I was a fool? Um, I, I have talked to people and I've talked to experts about this and their their main advice is to try to be empathetic because real relationships, if you still have those with people, are probably the only thing that are going to bring them back from the edge. When we're back, we're going to think beyond QAnon to what the emergence and mainstreaming of QAnon means for America. We've talked about what QAnon is and who believes in it, but now we're going to look at what Q says about America. Like I said at the beginning of this episode, part of what brings people to conspiracy theory in general is how scary and meaningless the world is. Like, there are lots of conspiracy theories about the Sandy Hook elementary school shooting, that there was more than one shooter, that it was a false flag, or that it never even happened. Is it because people can't handle the fact that one guy can so easily just up and decide to massacre a bunch of first graders? Conspiracy theories are convoluted. You know, that, they are ex- complicated explanations of complicated events. Nancy Rosenblum is a political theorist who studies historical and contemporary political thought. 
Recently, she's been exploring conspiracy theory in politics. When something important happens, when there's an event that's significant, and especially a perilous um, or fearful event, then you want an explanation for it. People will not accept that there are things that happen by accident or that there are unintended consequences. And they want a kind of proportionality between the significance of the event and the agent who makes it happen. So there are sort of cognitive reasons why people, as, as a very general matter, uh, look for and find solace in conspiracy theory. Because even if you're getting a fearful picture of uh, malignant men doing damage, um, at least you have an explanation that makes intuitive sense. In this world where we have so little connection in real life, where it's so difficult to find meaning, where so much is uncertain, conspiracy theories can be a place where people find refuge and find an identity, and maybe even a few friends. I think that the more interesting piece of it is the the way that people, isolated or not, begin to see themselves, identify themselves as part of a collective group. And this becomes part of their identity. The collective aspect of it is part of its appeal. Connecting with other people has become even more important during the coronavirus pandemic. And Brandy Zadrozny watched as participation in Q groups on Facebook exploded when lockdown orders began in March. We know for a fact that QAnon blew up right when lockdown orders began. So in March, you know, I've shown this on television a lot, but in March, there was a huge spike in QAnon groups and their interactions in membership and number of groups and in posts and on Facebook. Q blew up to the extent that President Trump was asked about it in August. We're going to play you the exchange in its entirety. During the pandemic, uh, the QAnon movement has been, appears to be gaining a lot of followers. Can you talk about what you think about that and what you have to say to people who are following this movement right now? Well, I don't know much about the movement other than I understand they like me very much, uh, which I appreciate. But I don't know much about the movement. Uh, I have heard that it is gaining in popularity. And from what I hear, it's, these are people that when they watch... The streets of Portland, when they watch what happened in New York City in just the last six or seven months. But this was starting even four years ago when I came here. Almost four years. Can you believe it? Uh, these are people that don't like seeing what's going on in places like Portland and places like Chicago and New York and other cities and states. And... Uh, I've heard these are people that love our country and they just don't like seeing it. So I don't know really anything about it other than they do supposedly like me and they also would like to see problems in these areas, like especially the areas that we're talking about, go away because there's no reason the Democrats can't run a city. And if they can't, we will send in all of the federal whether it's troops or law enforcement, whatever they'd like, we'll send them in, we'll straighten out their problem in 24 hours or less, okay? Well, as, just okay. at the crux of the theory is this belief that you are secretly saving the world from this satanic cult of pedophiles and cannibals. Does that sound like something you are behind? Or well, I haven't, I haven't heard that, but 
Is that supposed to be a bad thing or a good thing? I mean, you know, if, uh, if I can help save the world from problems, I'm willing to do it. I'm willing to put myself out there. And we are, actually. We're saving the world from a radical left philosophy that will destroy this country. And when this country is gone, the rest of the world would follow. The rest of the world would follow. That's the importance of this country. And when you look at some of the things that these people are saying with uh, defund the police and no borders, open borders, everybody just pour right into our country. No testing, no nothing. You know, you talk about testing, no testing. Uh, Mexico, as you know, has a very high rate of infection. The wall is now going to be next week 300 miles long. Uh, our numbers are extraordinary on the border. Had that, and this is through luck, perhaps, more than talent, although the talent is getting it built when one party refuses to allow it. You don't hear talk about the wall anymore. But I will say this. Um, we need strength in our country, not weakness. That rambling, incoherent response is missing something. A clear statement that QAnon isn't real. That while Trump might disagree with the Democrats, they certainly aren't pedophiles, cannibals, or Satanists. For Nancy Rosenblum, this inaction leads to a fundamental delegitimization and destabilizing of democratic institutions. Delegitimation is something different from mistrust. Delegitimation is um, more absolute. It says that this institution or this political party or these, these actors no longer have any meaning or any value or any authority for us. That they don't command any authority, they have no meaning, and they have no value. And, you know, historians and political scientists have studied the origins and the course of democratic legitimacy. We have very little experience with the delegitimation of these foundational institutions. And we have really very little idea, perhaps no seriously articulated idea of how you re-legitimize uh, a political environment that's been um, degraded and uh, discarded. But it's not just the delegitimization of democratic institutions. What QAnon says about America is that America no longer inhabits a shared reality. So for, for those of us who are not conspiracy-minded and who don't, aren't attracted to the right-wing conspiracism that's basically out there, it's disorienting. In fact, I began really want to talk about this um, after Trump's inauguration, when he claimed that, boasted that he had had the biggest inaugural crowd in all of history. And the next day, the National Park Service came out with the photographs of the inauguration, which they do every time there is one. And it showed that the inaugural crowd was a modest one. And Trump's response to this was to say that the photographs were doctored, that there were people in the National Park Service who doctored the photographs. And and I, you know, I responded to this with this kind of utter disorientation. I mean, what, it, it was an assault on common sense. And deeper than that, what it's created is a divide that I think is more damaging even than party polarization, a divide within the country 
about what it means to know something. What does it mean to know that the inaugural crowd was the biggest in history, if not uh, for the doctored photographs? There's a deep sort of what we call epistemic divide, a divide about how we know something and what it means to know something. And, and when you have that kind of divide in a democracy, you have uh, something that's unbridgeable, where people can't talk to one another at all um, across this divide because the, the knowledge that we need, the sort of common sense and, and basic groundwork of fact that we need to communicate with one another has been degraded and, and dissolved. So that, that's one. But maybe that's a little bit esoteric. I think that the, the more um, available significance for democracy is that this conspiracism has delegitimated foundational democratic institutions. And we've seen this day in and day out for some years now. And we're seeing it in full force now with uh, the administration's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. When enough of America believes in something that isn't real, it becomes difficult to tackle something that is. What's most perilous about Trump as, um, as a conspiracist, as having a conspiracist mindset, is that he wants to own reality and he has the capacity to impose his reality on the nation. That, I think, is the most important thing I would say. But there's an election on the horizon. And in only a few weeks, America will face four more years of Donald J. Trump or four years of Joseph R. Biden. What does that mean for QAnon and those who believe the storm is coming? I don't have a horse in this race, but if, if Donald Trump doesn't win the election, then maybe then maybe this will stop because can you have a religion without a messiah? You know, if he's not on TV every day, if he's not the center of attention, maybe QAnon will stop. But now the community has gotten so large and shifted um, so quickly to save the children's stuff and brought in so many sort of crunchy people on the left now. The community is just so, so big. It seems to me like QAnon is going to be around in some form for a very, very long time. Amor Asingham has a darker perspective on what we may see from QAnon in November. My kind of cynical theory is that there will be there's likely to be violence on the streets um, if they believe that time is running out, that the elevator door is closing, that Trump is leaving, um, but they haven't done anything, and that now is their kind of last-ditch effort to, um, you know, save the republic. Um, and 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 so you, you might see real uh, a real kind of violent response to that sense that time is running out, that they need to do something before he leaves. Um, it would be really great if at that around that time he w- he would say something or do something uh, to quell that. But I'm I'm not holding my breath um, for, for for kind of Trump to rise above it all. Um, but I, I do think uh, the election is going to be a key turning point for a lot of these different uh, disparate movements that have that have popped up over the last uh, three or four years, who see Trump as this um, Trump as a savior figure. Um, and and if there, if there's a anything less than a kind of smooth transition and to either his second term or to Biden, um, we could see real kind of conflict on the streets. The storm isn't coming, 
Neither Democrats nor Republicans are participating in a cabal of pedophilia, cannibalism, and Satanism. But there are clear indications that QAnon poses a serious domestic terror threat, and that there could be real violence as a result of a belief system that creates a moral imperative for those who believe to fight back against the oppressive elites and the evildoers who want to destroy America. That's a threat, which is always something that is yet to occur. What has occurred is that a subset of Americans, who may number in the millions, no longer inhabit the same reality as the rest of us. And from institutions to government to beating back a deadly pandemic, the challenge of re-establishing a shared reality is the real challenge that QAnon presents. According to some, there is a conspiracy where people are inserted into positions of power so that they can manipulate the law to their advantage, marching us towards a climate apocalypse just to make more money for those they represent. But it isn't QAnon. Next week on Who Is, EPA chief and former coal lobbyist, Andrew Wheeler. A sincere thank you to our guests, Amarnath Amarasingham, an assistant professor in the School of Religion at Queen's University in Ontario, Canada. Nancy Rosenblum, the Harvard University Senator Joseph Clark, professor of ethics and politics and government emerita. Her most recent book is A Lot of People Are Saying, The New Conspiracism and the Assault on Democracy. And Brandy Zadrozny, a reporter at NBC News, where she covers disinformation, extremism, and the internet. Who Is is a podcast from Now This. I'm Sean Morrow, your host. Michael McDowell is our producer. Editing and mixing by Will Stanton. Production support from Pedro Alvira, Rob Baynard, and Amanda Earle. Ron Flats is our senior producer. Our executive producers are Nancy Hahn, Brett Kushner, Sarah Frank, and Mangesh Hadakuder. And Now This, Tina Xaros is our chief content officer, and Nathan Stephanopoulos is our president. Who is the podcast season two new episodes out every Tuesday. If you like the show, don't forget to rate and subscribe. And if you have someone or something you think we should cover, email me at sm at now this media 